0: Welcome to Spooky South Coast Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast With your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costell
1: Good evening and welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor Matt Moniz is out in the field. He is investigating a South Coast uh, haunted location, which we cannot reveal because the people who are involved want to keep it private. But he is out there somewhere. He may check in with us a little bit later on. I know that he is investigating with Chris Balzano of the Massachusetts Paranormal Crossroads website, you can check out that site at MassCrossroads.com. And his new book is coming out real soon, Dark Woods, all about the uh, the Freetown State Forest and the different paranormal and non-paranormal non paranormal activity that's taken place there over the years. So we'll we'll throw in an early plug for that. Matt, we don't mind plugging stuff. You know that.
2: We like to plug stuff.
1: We do. It makes us
2: feel like real radio people. I know, really.
1: Like, do you ever sometimes, like when you're brushing your teeth, like stop, looking in the mirror, and like cut a promo?
2: <laughs> I don't, but I should.
1: You should. I do it. It's fun. But uh, tonight, you know, we don't need any promos for this show because it's so huge. Everybody is uh, already talking about it before we even go on the air. And, and of course, that's because uh, Cryptomundo.com reported the news earlier today that we would be talking about the Mothman. And we will be talking about the Mothman. We have a a great show lined up for you. We have Jeff Walmsley, who is an author of uh, books such as Mothman, Behind the Red Eyes, and uh, co-author of Mothman, The Facts Behind the Legend. And he lives in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, so he's going to be able to give us a, a real uh, firsthand account of, of what it's like, you know, living in the town that was made famous by the Mothman. And the Mothman Festival, of course, is next weekend. So we'll talk about that as well, all the different activities they have going on uh, through September 15th through the 16th, uh, so next Saturday and Sunday, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. And almost everything is free. To participate in. So it's it's really a great festival to go to. I don't know why we're not going there. Why aren't we going there? I don't know. Uh, I have to cover a Patriots game on Sunday. Yeah. so
2: yeah. Just because it's free there doesn't mean airfare is free. Or yeah, it's not yeah. free to
1: get down there. But uh, y- y- you catch your eye on one of the many spaceships uh, that that we're seeing there, too. We'll get into all of that more. I don't want to give away too much. If only
2: much. Moniz would make that hydroelectric car that he's that he's been talking about for... I know, huh? Save I, really. I, I,
1: I don't really want to... Uh, I, I don't want to give away too much of what we're going to talk about tonight ahead of time. I, I want to let our guests tell the story. But for those of you who have seen the Mothman Prophecies movie with Richard Gere that came out in 2002, if, if that's what you're using as, as your basis of the Mothman story, folks, the story is way bigger than that. Um, that was just a, a few portions of the story kind of Hollywoodized... Uh, And we talk about all the time here on Spooky South Coast when Hollywood gets a hold of a story, what they do with, like, they bastardized the Bell Witch and turned it into that horrible film in American Mm -hmm. Haunting. Uh, You know, the Mothman prophecies, everybody that was involved uh, is positive and supportive of the movie, but they all say, you know, it's only part of the story. So we're going to try and get deep into the whole story of the Mothman. So uh, why don't we actually bring on our first guest, Jeff Walmsley, uh, as I said before, he's the author of Mothman Behind the Red Eyes and Mothman the Facts Behind the Legend, and uh, you also are, are part of the Mothman Museum as well, right, Jeff?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, I guess you'd call a curator or director. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: It, it's its hard because, you know, you know, you picture curators to be uh, stuffy guys in suits, and, and something tells no, me that's not you.
0: No, if anybody's seen my picture, I'm not stuffy looking. I've still got that 80s metal hairdo and all that good stuff. <laughs>
1: As does Matt Moniz, who's not with us tonight, but you,
0: you, <laughs>
1: you guys would be kindred souls. But yeah, uh, we do have a picture of you too up on the blog at Coast dot com, holding up your book, which is great. Oh, okay. Always yeah. good to play. <laughs> yeah, same
0: with self promotion there. <laughs>
1: so now, did you grow up in Point Pleasant, or did you yeah. move there?
0: Yeah, I did. I I've, I've grew up there. Um, matter of fact, I grew up real close to uh, some of the first, you know, witnesses and stuff, and that's how I kind of got interested in the story. You know.
1: And, you know, there's uh, there's reports when you read uh, John Keel's book, Mothman Prophecies, and when you go over a lot of the research, there there are Walmsley's that are involved yeah. in the sighting. Are they relatives of yours?
0: No, they're not, but I get asked that about on a, a weekly basis because um, there were some Walmsley's on the bridge collapse. Uh, there was also Raymond Wamsley who's who uh, was a brother to Marcella Bennett. Uh, but what it boils down to is actually two sp- two sets of Walmsleys in Point Pleasant and you know there still is but um, I'm I'm not related directly I mean maybe distantly and stuff but a lot of people ask that because they think that's maybe how I got Mm -hmm. you know involved in writing the books and stuff but I'd have to say no to that one
1: (laughs) well when I first tried to contact you I actually called uh, the Jeff Walmsley found in the book and there's there's two in town
0: (laughs) yeah there is and they get all my calls so I, I actually live across the river here so we we live over here but uh i i actually talked to uh the wife of one of the other jeff Walms, and i asked her if, he, if they get a lot of calls and mothman related and she kind of chuckled and said yeah so he, it kind of worked out pretty good for me he was <laughs> yeah. very
1: nice i mean he, he was real supportive he's like nope that's not me i was like do you have a number no yeah. i don't know
0: <laughs> yeah that's I, I don't know which one that, there was three three jeff walps from point pleasant so, wow um not sure which one it was. <laughs>
1: Well, luckily, uh, we got the right one tonight. So Yeah. Now, when you first started uh, digging into the... I mean, growing up, is this something that you'd always heard, like, in school, yeah. stories that kids tell, like, we would tell, you know, uh, urban legends type of stories?
0: Yeah, I remember being, you know, like, in junior high and high school and, and you know, seeing John Keel's book. And, you know, at that time, I really didn't... I didn't... Uh, I kind of grew up with the story. A lot of people called it the Big Bird. You know, that's, that's what they referred them off, man, you know, as... And, uh, you know, but I, I remember looking at his book thinking, you know, this is about people that, that live here, you know, and I recognized some of the names and, and things like that, you know. But at that time, I never realized that years later that I would be, you know, running a museum and a festival and, and doing books and stuff, you know. So over the years, you know, it just seemed like it got more interesting as time went by. Well,
1: it's almost like, too, with, with John Keel's uh, Failing Health and – yeah, somebody's kind of got to pick up the mantle and, and carry on, you know, any future research and, and keeping the story yeah. alive.
0: That's true, because there's really not a lot of people that, that have have uh, really carried the torch a whole lot. I mean, you know, I uh, I talk to him, you know, pretty often and stuff, but we usually end up talking about stuff that that really doesn't have anything to do with the Mothman story. So, you know, he, he may have had his fill yeah. of, of the Mothman stuff, but... Um, you're right. I mean, it, 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 it's a good thing not to, to let it just die off, and which I don't think it will. I mean, you know, it's, it seems like there's more interest now than, than there ever has been, and stuff. So, um, I mean,
1: how much does it affect the community? You know, during the year, not just at the time. Obviously, during the time of the festival, you know, everybody's going to have their their Mothman costumes on yeah. and their Mothman T-shirts. But the rest of the year, I mean, are people seriously, you know, considering? The possibility that this thing could still be around, or is it kind of like the little the little thing that town trots out once a year?
0: No, I mean you know of course you have to remember there's a lot of visitors, a lot of out of town visitors mm-hmm. that come to the festival and the museum and stuff. Um, you know some of the locals still think that that you know whatever this thing was you know could still be around. But then there's other people that kind of look at it a little different. You know it happened you know 40 years ago. Um, nobody's seen it since. You know. There's there's different opinions on that, but um, I get emails constantly, you know, from people describing, you know, a, a large bird flew over their car, or chased them in their car in Mexico or Seattle. You know what I'm saying? So whether or not those two are directly related, yet is, is remains to be seen. So, um, but it's still interesting. I mean, you know, there's there's always that that the unknown out there. So, but yeah, most of the locals. You know, you have your skeptics. I'm, yeah. I'm used to that. So, but
1: um, Now, if, if we go back to the original sightings, um, uh-huh. and, and now what would be the first sighting? Because well, I've always heard that, that the Scarberries and the Millettes were the first sighting.
0: Well, in Point Pleasant, yeah. But uh, a couple nights before that in Clendenham, West Virginia, you know, you had those four guys that were digging the grave. I don't know if you ever heard about that one. Uh, Clendenham, West Virginia, is, is about an hour from Point Pleasant. I think that was on the uh, 12th of November, 66, and then on the 14th of November of 66 in Salem, West Virginia. That was where Merle Partridge, who was the the, uh, the guy who had the, the German Shepherd named Bandit, that disappeared. Uh, then the 15th is when it started here. So some people, you know, debate that. They, you know, but the, the, the very first reported sighting here in Point Pleasant would have been Scarberry's and the Mallet.
1: And that was the two young married couples that were driving in the, right. the TNT area, where the the abandoned TNT factory is. Right. And and then just describe uh, what they've said, because I'm sure you've talked to them. And
0: well, I've, I've talked to Linda, and uh, the, the other ones are, you know, very private. They mm-hmm. they uh, shun any publicity or interviews. <laughs> so, but yeah, I have talked to Linda, but um, but basically, they were up in the TNT area. A lot of the kids would go up there and drag race, you know. Uh, it was it was seven miles out of the city limits, so, you know, they'd have to worry about the police being up there a lot, well, it was sheriff's deputies or whatever. Um, they're up or running around, driving by the uh, old uh, abandoned uh, power plant, they called it the North Power Plant. Huge building, about three stories tall, and uh, Linda, I think, was the first one to spot it, but she thought it was just somebody standing in the road, but she said it had, it was shaped like a man, had wings above its head, almost like an angel type thing, uh, and and very hypnotic red eyes. And then, of course, the other three got a good look at it. Uh, They didn't really know what to think. It ran into the building. They decided to take off, and when they did, it came out of the building after them. So by the time they hit the main route, which was Route 62, going back into Point Pleasant, it was right over top of the car, and uh, chased them almost to the city limits. And I guess whenever this thing seemed, you know, the city lights or whatever, it kind of veered off, um, of course they didn't know what to do as far as you know reporting it to the police and they finally mustered up enough courage you know because they knew when they went to the sheriff's department you know they'd tell them they were all crazy and stuff which they did mm-hmm. and uh but that was the only the beginning because you know you had all kinds of reported sightings right after that so um, they were just the ones that took the brunt of the humiliation at first And then I think the sheriff's department figured after everybody else started coming in reporting the same thing, that there was actually something going on up there.
1: I know, and one of the stories that's been uh, put out there, one of the theories, is that it was something as simple as a large bird or a sandhill crane. And when you hear so many of these reports, uh, not only from the Scarberries and the Millettes, but others that followed, They say that it followed alongside their car. And wouldn't most birds or or natural creatures, wouldn't they fly away from a motor vehicle, especially a speeding motor vehicle?
0: Yeah, it seems so. But, you know, Sandhill Crane Theory was brought on by a professor from West Virginia University. They brought him in to kind of calm everybody down. But most of the people I've interviewed or talked to or whatever were offended by that. You know, they, they didn't feel that that was necessary because... It made them look like, you know, their 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 stories weren't very credible, and, and a lot of them were angry about that. But um, and then you know the fact that that a sandhill crane has has bird legs, you know, real skinny stork type legs and stuff. So um, yeah, that that there was a theory. Uh, it was a large owl of some sort or a sandhill crane. Um, but you know, uh, I. Most of the people I've talked to said, you know, they had seen pictures of sandhill cranes or actually seen them up up close. And they didn't they didn't think what they were seeing was a sandhill crane. So,
1: I mean, the skeptics will always try to find something to yeah. try to explain it away. Yeah. It
0: just ended up offending a bunch of them. You know, they just got to the point where they they didn't want to talk to anybody about it. So, but to this day, you know, I can talk to you know, if I talk to Linda, she, she she knows that what she saw wasn't a sandhill crane. Now, maybe some people were seeing sandhill cranes up there, you know, because that's the the migration route, you know, for sandhill cranes to go down south or wherever they go and stuff. So, um, I, you know, I've heard about every theory you can think of. <laughs> um,
1: I can imagine. Yeah. Now, one, this is where the story kind of gets a little bit, um, uh, where it kind of can veer off for some people. Uh, most people, I think, can accept the idea that there was some sort of strange Uh, cryptid or or some sort of creature that that people saw. But when Uh, you read John Keel's book and you hear about some of these UFO phenomena that was going around at the mm -hmm. time, these men in black visitations, Mm -hmm. and how Mothman could all be tied into that, uh, how much of that do you equate with the the Mothman legends that you've heard growing up?
0: Quite a few of them. I mean, you know, it's because the the UFO sightings were just all over the place. Mm -hmm. That was actually going on before... You know, this Mothman stuff. I mean, we have in the museum all kinds of documented uh, sightings and press clippings and newspaper reports, uh, probably more on UFOs than we actually have on, on Mothman, you know. but um, And then, uh, you know, there, there's some documented cases, well, not in the papers, but, uh, you know, with the, these men in black, you know, people didn't know, you know, if they were military or government or extraterrestrial, which I think Keel thought that they were from another realm or whatever. But, um, yeah, it did it, it all – I think that's what makes the Mothman story so interesting. Is that it's, it's all – there's so many different uh, areas in the, in the one story, you know what I mean? Um, Men in Black, UFOs, Silver Bridge Collapse, Mothman Sighting, all that stuff. It's, you could sit and talk for hours about it.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, and that's why when you look at it and you say, you know, I, I, I can't really – You know, make that correlation in my own mind that, you know, this creature could be tied into them. But then when you start to see all this evidence mounting up in all these cases and how, you know, and it becomes kind of clear that there was something definitely going on in in Point Pleasant during that time that was being targeted uh, by some other intelligence one way or another, be it extraterrestrial or superterrestrial or (laughs) however you want to look at it. Let me ask you this. What do you think was going on? What do you think the Mothman was or... or,
0: I get I, I, somebody asked me that today in an interview as a matter of fact. Um, my, my answer usually is you know I, I really don't know mm-hmm. because there, there's just so, so many different facets to the story. I mean, what I usually tell people is you know that, that I know that there was people people were seeing something up there, you know um, uh, you know the different descriptions and, and uh, uh, things like that. It's, uh, it's just really hard to pinpoint know what it may have been some people thought maybe it was some kind of a mutant type bird that got into the some of the uh discarded waste up there from the military site and um so i you know that's a a tough one that's everybody asked me that though you know uh, i try to just uh investigate it and collect the evidence and and the hard to find interviews and and kind of let people look at it and then. People Be- like Fox News, you know we report you decide
1: <laughs> well, because if you if you when, once you take all these accounts together and you look at what 's going on i mean it 's very ominous, yeah, yeah. Wh- what it means yeah to have these and I think you know from reading keel 's book and and the reports that are in there that mm-hmm. whatever these supposed visitors were now for those unfamiliar with the story, you know these people who had had sightings of the mothman or or ufo sightings are visited by and we've talked about men in black phenomena here before but we've talked about them as like government agents or right but these are these are just strange characters that are coming up to these people with strange facial features and high-pitched voices and Mm -hmm. weird telephone calls and
0: yeah mary hire was you know the reporter that was reporting all the different mothman sightings things like that you know of course she she died only four years after all that stuff was going on and, and um, I talked to her niece just recently and and asked her about it
3: and she said yeah you know that
0: her aunt was, was scared you know she'd look out her window at night and be sitting down in the car you know watch her house and come to her office and ask her what reason she had to be putting this in the paper and things like you know not really threatening her life or anything but making it clear to her that they weren't really happy with what she was doing. so uh, and, and some of those witnesses, too, you know. Um, it's just, you know, they didn't report a lot of that stuff into the newspapers. I mean, they didn't, at least I've never seen any, you know, where they say strange men in black revisit uh, a ball fan witness and threaten her life or something, you know. But, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it, it, that that's probably out of the whole story. The men in black stuff is the hardest to, to really validate. No,
1: I can imagine, people, yeah. You know? Well, and and then you have, uh, for those who have seen the film, um, Will Patton's character is kind of based on Woody, uh, is it Derenberger?
0: I haven't heard that one. I mean, I know in the movie, you know, he ends up dead, you know, by the tree there. Um, But that's the first time I've heard that that might have been, because Woody Derenberger lived in Parkersburg, which is an hour from Point Pleasant.
1: I I kind of just got the sense uh, from the idea of having the, the interactions all the time with, oh, this, yeah, with, the, yeah. with the injured cold character right
0: uh, yeah that's a, that's, that's a point I mean I've never heard, heard that one but um,
1: but it's the same type of uh, situation for anybody yeah. that's only seen the movie I mean yeah. where he was being contacted and visited right. by this character and, and supposedly you know, told things that were going to happen
0: yeah injured cold or I mean uh, Woody Derenberger of course you know he, I, I don't think he's living now but you know he uh, uh, there, there are actually a few interviews of him with one of the local TV stations. Um, I've never listened to him or anything, but um, yeah, I guess you could you could look at the movie part that way. It was kind of hard, really, with the movie to figure out who was who. Yeah, you know, somebody asked me that question today too at the museum. Um, I guess the, the guy, Alexander Leake, in the movie, the, the guy that Richard Gere kept asking questions to. Now I, I'd always heard he was actually supposed to be John Keel. Because well, Leeke League was League killed backwards, yeah. yeah. So, but yeah.
1: But then, so much of Richard Gere's character
0: is John yeah. Keel as yeah, well. yeah, he so. was more of an investigator, writer type thing, you know.
1: So, I mean, uh, when you start, you know, you're basically making a uh, just a blending of, of the different characters to get the story across. But when you read the book and when you study what actually went on, yeah. And and these characters, uh, and I say characters, I mean these creatures, these visitors, whoever they were. Mm-hmm just the way that they integrated themselves into these people's lives where, yeah. you know, Derenberger would think nothing of the fact that he was having a conversation with Cold and they would tell him, you know, they were from uh, from this planet and uh-huh. introduce him to others. Was it a matter of, could it have been a matter of they're just telling him what they think will work? You know what I mean? What he's willing to believe. It's not so much that that's the truth, mm-hmm. but as as Kiel suggests, they're kind of just playing on what you'll buy into.
0: Right. Yeah, that's true. Um, you know, I never, I've never really researched Derenberger a whole lot mm-hmm. um, other than, uh, you know, some of the stuff in Kiel's book and everything. Um, his, uh, I, I got some emails from his daughter one time. She was supposed to come to one of the festivals, but she couldn't make it or something. So I was kind of interested in you know, talking to her a little bit and everything. But uh, there is a lady coming to the festival, that's Susan Shepard, who, who has those tapes, those interview tapes and stuff. So, you know, I guess those would really be interesting, kind of shed some new light on that, oh,
1: that yeah. end of the story. I mean, it, it's. It's how, like I said, you know, you, you kind of have to make these leaps in logic and kind of make a decision as to what you think was going on, and that kind right. of follows your, your research and, and what you're willing to believe. Yeah. But I, I think, you know, I, I kind of agree with Keel in this matter, and I never really thought myself. That UFO intelligences and, and and extraterrestrial beings that are supposedly seen mm-hmm. could be something earthly that's just of another yeah. dimension or plane. I never yeah. really bought into that. Yeah. I mean, we've had guests here that have sat here and told us
0: that, and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah no. But, <laughs>
1: but when you study the Mothman case, it becomes more and more plausible.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, that, that's what Keel's known for. <laughs> you know that that angle and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, but yeah, you know, a lot of people in the the paranormal fields and stuff are very Know, they're setting their ways and stuff you know um, there again, most of the stuff that I've, I've looked in I, I'm just into the, the archival stuff you know the the rare press clippings or newspaper reports that I could find which there's not a lot out there you know um, but um, yeah you know you, you could if you, if you could get Keel to sit down and talk to him, I'm sure you could, you could pick his brain on some of that stuff you know well uh,
1: in, in your books I mean what what approach do you take with your books?
0: Um, well, there again, both of my books are more, uh, you know, investigative. You know, I, I've heard so many different theories and different angles and stuff. I, I really, you know, haven't got to the point where I've, I've been like Keel and, and, you know, put forth my uh, hypothesis and everything. Mm-hmm. But uh, I just know that there was a lot of weird stuff going on, <laughs> you know, in Point Pleasant.
1: But, but to be able to tell it more from the... Because as much as he might have been accepted by the community with what was going on, I mean, John Keel was an outsider. And yeah, yeah. It's going to be hard for a lot of people, especially, you know, the, the, the West Virginia, almost the, you know, the the salt of the earth type of people that, mm-hmm. that live there. Yeah. You know, they're not going to just open up to this guy from New York.
0: Well, yeah, that's true. um, you know, most, uh, everybody in Point Pleasant knows who John Keel is, um, uh, but, uh i've been lucky because you know i did know most of the people but you know i've had people you know that last book that i did i had two really good interviews and stuff and they they just got a funny vibe you know they they didn't feel like they wanted to talk about it anymore and stuff so but yeah you know it's that that angle i've never really uh I, you know i'm not so much into uh like you know with keel and some of those other guys you know will you know have their theories and stuff but uh Maybe maybe that could be in the next book. I don't know.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it, but it's important. No matter what yeah. all this stuff is that's going on around it, it's important that this creature was sighted.
0: Yeah. He received... yeah, there's no doubt about that. Now, you know, it's like I said, there was probably 100 reported sightings there in about a year and a half, but <clears throat> there, there was a lot of them that weren't reported, you know, because people back then, you know, even today, just don't want that ridicule factor and, you know, humiliation and stuff. So I, I always thought that, you know, if there was that many people coming to the authorities, there was probably a lot that just said, hey, you know, just keep quiet. We don't need the, the attention and stuff. So quite a few, yeah.
1: I can. I mean, for, a lot of people aren't going to want to be vocal about this type of site. Right.
0: Well, still today, I mean, a lot of those people, well, like we were talking about, you know, the malice. I mean, they, they've never granted an interview in 40 years. so. Now, Uh, they'll admit that they saw it, but, you know, they won't go into detail or anything.
1: And how much of this do you think plays into, I mean, it's been forever linked between the book and and the movie, and Mm -hmm. how much of the Mothman sightings do you think are tied into the collapse of the Silver Bridge?
0: Well, that's a touchy subject, and of course, you know, there's a technical reason the bridge fell. There's a lot of people in Point Pleasant, you you know, the movie brought a lot of that on, too, you know, as far as... uh, you know, being related, but then I've talked to people who, who claim to have seen, you know, something flying across the, the bridge there right before it fell. Um, that's that's almost like the men in black stuff because there's not too many of those witnesses that you know verify that they did see something. Now, then there was also some reports of, you know, men in, some of these men in black climbing up and down on the, you know, the, the side of the bridge and things like that. Oh, wow. so, of course, the, like there again, the movie really played that up quite a bit so uh that that failed eye bolt is, is the technical reason that it fell but uh you know that's that's another chapter in that mothman story the, the bridge disaster and stuff so
1: i mean and it, it does it begs the question you know was the mothman a, a harbinger of doom and yeah when you look at what lauren coleman has uh accumulated with the mothman curse and all these people that have been tied into the yeah. The Mothman well, saga. It's Forty
0: years later, too. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. people are going to die. Yeah, whether, absolutely. You know, but I, I know what you're saying. It's uh, it's, it's uh,
1: people people will want to look to that as as a reason, as you know, as an explanation for why this creature was there.
0: Yeah, that's true. And there again, the movie did play up the the, the harbinger of doom and trying to warn people of, of uh, you know impending disaster and things like that. Honestly, you know, 40 years ago when that happened, I, I, I think that's why the attention went away from the Mothman, because, you know, that was a really, really bad time, you know, for the history of the town and stuff. Mm-hmm. And that, I, I've kind of shied away from, from the bridge stuff a lot, because, you know, there's a lot of people that don't like, they don't want to bring that up sure. and stuff, I mean, you know, and out of respect for them. I, you know, I, into my books and stuff, I'll, I'll have some of the archives and things like that. But uh, that was one thing from the beginning that I, I made clear to people I didn't want to, you know, sell a book, you know, with all Silverbridge horror stories and things like that because it was a, it was a nasty, nasty time.
1: I uh, I mean, for for the scars won't heal from that. Right. And and to throw and you know the something. 40th
0: anniversary coming up this December. Mm-hmm. So you know, usually when that happens, and then of course when that thing happened in Minnesota, people were, you know calling and wanting to talk to people, you know, the bridge collapse and stuff. But yeah, you're right. It's,
1: you try to toss something supernatural or paranormal into the mix, and it's like rubbing salt into the wound to a lot of people.
0: True, yeah, because they don't want to, they, you know, they just don't want to talk about it, period, you know. Mm-hmm. Um. So that's, that's kind of a touchy area, you know, well, as far as for being from Point Pleasant, you know what I'm saying? I mean, you know, if, if you were from out of town, it, it might be a little easier for you to, Talk openly about it, but you know I have to kind of watch. I don't want to get anybody upset, you know, because you know there's a lot of people lost lost uh, family and stuff in that. for Point Pleasant.
1: And you know, moving on to a, to a happier subject, though. Yeah. Be, <laughs> the sixth annual Mothman Festival coming up next weekend. Right. And and this is it. Just sounds like uh, such a, a a great. I mean, I, I heard uh, I heard your discussion uh, with the guys from Ghostly Talk. And just the excitement that they showed for it,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> and they're gonna—they're actually gonna be uh, helping you host the event this year.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because you know they've—they've they've came for probably four years straight, and um, I'm just too busy sometimes, you know, running around and stuff like that. And we had the idea last year was like just give them, you know, you put a mic in their hands and they're—they're they're off and running.
1: Yeah, they're, they're great
0: so, guys. Like you know, so we—we we said why don't we just let them, you know, the guest speakers, you know, to they come. They're, they're going to kind of host that and. Um, yeah, it's uh, the six one, and and uh, each year gets a little bigger and better. Um, you know, it's, it's just it's a place that I think I'm telling them it's a good place for people like you or them or other people to come and just network and meet up with people. You know,
1: absolutely, kind of, yeah,
0: kind of like in the middle of the country, and um, it's like a family reunion type deal. I, I've noticed that over the years because I you see people that you know, hey, you know, i seen you last year. You know, we meet up every year at the Mossman Fest.
1: And just taking a look at some of the names that will be there, you have uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, who's a, a good friend of this show. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you have uh, Susan Shepard, as you said. She's going to be talking about Woody Derenberger and Indrid Cold. Yeah. Uh, you have Carol McCormick. Uh, from Actually, the...
0: Carol can't make it. Uh, okay. They replaced her with, uh, uh, they just let me know that today.
1: Uh, up to the minute. uh Yeah. Uh, information is on the website yeah sure. yeah we'll be Mo- moffmanlives.com and we have it linked up on spookysouthcoast.com as well okay and then ryan buell from uh paranormal state on a yeah. and e yeah. and what, what i'm really interested in i, I want to ask you this before uh, before we hit the news uh-huh. is you have dan cutler who's a chief cornstalk reenactor and yeah. this is a lost part of the story i think yeah. is chief cornstalk and, and the supposed curse that he he laid on that right. area
0: well there's there's very uh, different opinions on that deal too um you know when he does he, he gives a little bit of history behind cornstalk and, and I, I don't really think he he plays into that cornstalk curse but um we wanted to have him anyway because people always want to know about cornstalk and things like that but supposedly that the cornstalk curse maybe came from a playwright like in the 20s mm-hmm. you know it was a stage play that somebody wrote but then there are people that believe, you know, when he was killed that, you know, him and his son both were massacred and they put that two hundred year curse on, on the you know, the town of Point Pleasant. So, you know, there again that's another that's another element of that Mothman story, but people do ask about, you know, Chief Cornstalk, you know, they they exhumed his remains and moved them down to the Twindwee Park and they said that, you know, that had something to do with all this stuff that went on and everything but, but yeah we try to keep it a little different each year we we try to get lauren coleman last year and stuff but he couldn't make it he had to cancel and um so you know of course john keel came about four years ago i think it was and that was that was really cool but um he just isn't into traveling anymore or, or not not a whole lot but um, you know we try to you know try to get people to come you know that have something to do with that Mothman story or. Kind of paranormal ties in with it too, you
1: know. Well, one of the things that I find the most interesting is that you have some actual eyewitnesses that are going to be there and yes. and actually willing to talk about what they saw. Right, uh, Linda Scarberry, mm-hmm. um, Tom, is it Yuri? Is yeah, that, uh, Faye Dewitt, Dottie Campbell. Yeah, and, uh, and
0: Dottie Campbell was the next door neighbor to Mary Hire. So, so she, of course, over every, over tea,
1: they must have shared everything. You yeah,
0: exactly. Well, no, by the by the fence in the backyard, what <laughs> she told me every day. When Mary Howard would come home, they'd go out and get the latest scoop on everything and stuff. But uh, And there's a, there's a few other ones that we're trying to get to. Noel Partridge is supposed to come. That's the one that had the bandit, dog bandit, um, and, and a few others that we'll probably add on there. And that, there again, that's tentative too, but they were there last year and stuff. And it's not about, you know, I always make it clear to everybody we're not putting them on parade or, mm-hmm. or on, a, you know, display or public flogging or anything like that, you know. It's, kind of a laid back thing if people want to talk to him that's fine but nobody's going to be there you know poking fun of him and saying hey, you know that that's what we try to try to avoid it went, went real well last year well,
1: it sounds like you also have a lot of fun at the conference I mean there's yeah. there's the parade and there's costume contests and... well we
0: don't have a parade yet we've talked about it okay well we do that I'm those... sorry the hayride that's yeah, what yeah. I meant to say the yeah, hayride that's, a big thing. That's, that's just up through the TNT area there kind of gives everybody a feel for what a, what it it was like you know um and this, yeah, the, the costume contest is the first try this year. We'll see how that goes.
1: And um, is there uh there's there's a, a camp out in the T N T area too?
0: Well, up there where we have the hay rides and stuff, they have a campground where, where people can camp if they want. At it's a the farm museum up there. So they uh they have a lot of people that like it. it's still kinda of warm and you know, at this time of year here. And uh, so yeah, they, they can camp up there if they want. Was, has there, there was, ever been
1: any UFO sightings or anything from anybody there during the uh, festival?
0: Um, I get, uh, you know, a lot of people email me with pictures of orbs and all that kind of stuff, in the igloos up there, you know, the concrete dome igloos and stuff. Um, nothing I can, that I can remember. I'm sure they're out looking, though,
3: you know. <laughs> I'm all sure, over that,
0: yeah. TNT area. It's 3,000 acres up there. It's a big area.
1: And now all these, just about all of these events that are tied in with the festival are, are free admission.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the hayride, I think, you know, it's, it's five for adults. Three. You know, we try to keep it that way because we don't really... We started this thing with, with no budget, and we still do it with no budget, <laughs> you know. But um,
1: and you want to draw families, too.
0: Yeah, yeah, and and it's it's like, you know, uh, there's, they're going to have a little haunted house thing that one of the school uh, groups is, is doing a haunted house that features some offman stuff, and I think it's three or four bucks, but uh, no, you know, I mean, it, it's not like you have... Pay for a bunch of stuff. I mean, you know, of course, there's food vendors and and things like that, but we've been pretty lucky as far as keeping it to where people can show up and not get, you know, built out of money all all day long and stuff.
1: Now, are there plans for any more books? Are you actually in the process of of planning a few more?
0: You know, I (laughs) I never say never anymore. I I really didn't know if I would do a second one, you know, but uh, I, I would have to say probably, yeah. But I have no timeline or anything right now, but I'm always looking. I'm always looking for those hard-to-find interviews. And, you know, there's still a bunch of those major witnesses that have never never told their side of the story, and I, I'm always asking why, you know.
1: Well, that's what I'm thinking is is we saw the same thing with the Roswell witnesses. Is yeah. As they get older and yeah. they, they start to realize their time is running out, then yeah. they're willing to open up a little more and share their story.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that's true. I mean, I don't want to badger them or anything like that. But, and some of them I've talked to, you know, have said, "Well, I really don't have anything new to add to the story. It's already been told." You know, but I don't. I I, I still would like to sit down with them and, and uh, get get their scoop on things. I mean, I think it's you know pretty interesting. I, I to me, they're kind of historical figures in a way. You know, when it comes to the story.
1: Well, sure, because this. Forever, this will always be part of Point Pleasant's yeah. history, and yeah. and anybody that studies the the paranormal or the unusual, it'll right. always yeah. be on on their map.
0: Yeah, well, like you know Linda Scarberry, most people know who that is now. You know she doesn't realize that, but <laughs> you know I tell her all the time. I say you know people know who you are. You know, so. it's just, I, I, and and with her, it's just it's that kind of notoriety she really doesn't want. You know, she's, she's a pretty private person and stuff. A lot of them are like that. You know. They don't, they don't want to be made into you know cult figures or anything like that or whatever, but
1: especially because the pressure gets on them after a while they're like I only saw it once for like ten seconds yeah, yeah,
0: yeah I know that's and, and uh but yeah, you know if, if people get a chance to come to the festival they, they can talk to them in person, you know ask them they, they're they're cool about answering questions and stuff excellent.
1: Well, Jeff, we'd like to thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, th- thanks for giving us some time. On yeah, I appreciate you calling. When, when I can imagine you must be busy getting everything ready.
0: Yeah, this week's usually, the week before is, is pretty hectic and stuff, but we usually pull it off, you know.
1: Well, everybody can go to com or com, and you'll find links about the festival and, and how to get Jeff's books and uh All the uh, information about the Mothman is is up there, too. Just, you know, you can get a chance to read. Don't go to Wikipedia or something like that because, you know, they're going to start diluting the facts. Get it right from Jeff Walmsley at Point Pleasant. All right, Jeff, thanks. And now we we hope to talk to you again soon.
3: Okay, thanks. All right, take care. Okay,
1: bye-bye. That is Jeff Walmsley, author of Mothman Behind the Red Eyes and co-author of Mothman. The Facts Behind the Legend with Donnie Sargent Jr. And I just want to mention before we hit the news, uh, I spoke with Donnie Sargent Jr. earlier today. He couldn't make the show tonight. Uh, He was going to, but some things came up. uh, But he he will definitely be with us in the future. Uh, In the meantime, you can check out MothmanCasebook.com for more information about his new wave of Mothman investigations. He's actually been talking to a lot of people, uh, just as as, uh, Jeff has, and gathering new witnesses, new testimony, things that you haven't heard or read elsewhere. And he's going to be compiling it all on mothmancasebook.com. And he also has up on that site a podcast, a Mothman podcast, where he actually um, just comes on and and, and talks about some of the new developments, some of the research, and some of the history of the case. So that's worth checking out as well. And, again, we will have Donnie on sometime. Uh, We'll see if we can pair him up with Jeff again sometime in the future. And uh, we're still holding out hope that someday we'll be able to get John Keel to join us. But uh, we'll, we'll see if we can pull that off at some point. We're going to take a break for the news. When we come back, we will do our news segment, The Week in Weird. And then uh, when we come back after that, we will go back into the case of the Mothman with an interview with cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman. We'll talk with him about his beliefs of what the Mothman are. And if you've read John Kill's book, The Mothman Prophecies, I can tell you Lauren's view of things is, is quite different. He also wrote his own Mothman book, Mothman and Other Curious Encounters. So we'll talk to him about that. And uh, we'll also see if we can check in with Matt Moniz while he's out in the field. He was calling me like crazy earlier, so I wonder if they got something going on. But we'll find out when we come back after the news. Stay tuned here on Spooky South Coast. Hello everybody, Tim Weisberg from Spooky South Coast, and this Saturday night we will give away a pair of tickets to Weird Al Yankovic's show at the Zyterian Theater in New Bedford on Wednesday, September 19th, but we want you to send us your best paranormal parody song. Take any popular song and rewrite the lyrics to be about something to do with the paranormal or maybe just about Spooky South Coast. It doesn't have to be the entire song, only a piece of it will do. If you can record your own version and send it to us as an mp3, great! We'll play it on the show this Saturday night, but even if you can't record it, just send us the lyrics and what song you're sending up, and we'll see if we can throw something together on our end. Also, be sure to include your name, age, address, and phone number. You can email all entries to Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com. Only Massachusetts and Rhode Island residents will be eligible to win the tickets, because you know we want to make sure you can actually go to the show, but don't hesitate to send in your parody anyway. We'll have other prizes for those who live outside the South Coast area. So get weird with Spooky South Coast, and you could be going to see Weird Al Yankovic. Welcome to Spooky
3: South Coast. Look, I know the
0: supernatural is something that is.
1: Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, out in the field, working with... Uh, I just spoke with him, Matt. He has a like an all-star crew investigating with him. He's got a whole I bunch think. of people out there. He's got uh, Chris Balzano. He's got some friends of uh, Tom D'Agostino, author of Haunted Rhode Island and Haunted Massachusetts, and I think Haunted New Hampshire, too. I'm not sure. I'll have to double-check that. But uh, And Mike Markowitz of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. Uh, the television show out there, and so there's there's a whole bunch of people there investigating this case, uh, and he said the homeowners are involved as well. So it should be interesting. Again, I, I don't think we can share that information with anybody. I think it's a private case, but uh, they'll share with us. They'll let us know off the air. So it just sounds like they have a lot of great activity going on and, and some well documented evidence. Speaking of uh, well documented evidence, ghost hunters is coming back. I don't know if you heard. Is it? Yes, coming Your back season? for another season. Yes, really? in September. I got the screener. We'll have to watch it, you know, later on this week and, and see what it's all about. But they went to Seattle for the for the first episode. So what we'll do is uh, maybe we'll watch it. and We'll post a review on on SpookySouthCoast dot com. But we have to be nice because Jason and Grant will read it. They and, will. And I'm afraid of them. I'm afraid of Jason.
2: Is it the goatee? It's the goatee now. He's yeah. got that goatee. It,
1: it's crazy. So, uh, But that is uh, what's coming up. Uh, There's a whole bunch of of paranormal stuff happening coming up in the next couple of weeks because it is, you know, the the Halloween season is upon us. I I knew that when I pulled into my neighborhood and people already had Halloween decorations up. I was like, it's just Labor Day. Labor Day just happened and already people are are celebrating. But uh, one thing that we do want to make you aware of is something that uh, was in today's Standard Times. Can I say that? Today's newspaper, the local newspaper here. The South Coast Pagan Community...
2: called Com- the Standard
1: Tim. The Standard Tim. <laughs> I didn't write this one, though. This was uh, Charis Anderson. The South Coast's Pagan Community will come together Sunday, to ce- that would be tomorrow, to celebrate the Autumn Equinox at the annual Pagan Pride Day Festival. The day-long festival will be held at the Ted Williams Camp in Lakeville, and will include everything from information on pagan spiritual practices to a drumming circle and pagan religious ceremony, according to Lisa Butler, local coordinator for Southeastern Massachusetts Pagan Pride. Ms. Butler said that this is an opportunity for all of us to get together and celebrate the annual harvest season. It's also an opportunity for us to invite other people to come in and see what we do. The day's events will begin at 10 a.m. and will run until 6 p.m., The drum circle begins at 3.30 p.m. and will lead into the ritual ceremony. Between 200 and 400 people are expected to attend the festivities. People are invited to come and participate as much or as little as they want, including full participation or just observing, Ms. Butler said. The local event is affiliated with the Pagan Pride Project, a global organization that works to reduce discrimination against pagan religions. Here are an estimated 100,000 practitioners of paganism in the United States. So that sounds interesting. I don't know if you're going to get a chance to go out there. I I won't because, as much as I support the idea of pagan pride, um, it also clashes with the beginning of football season, which is my own personal religion.
2: So I, it's I pagan in its own right. It, it's yeah. it's
1: pig skin. So go. it's kind of like pagan. But uh, yeah, it's it's you know actually football is one of the most religious experiences you can have because. Uh, for most of the game, please God, please God. <laughs> I do more praying during a football game than I do uh, most of the other time. But anyway, is that, d- that is that weird that I do that? Is it is it weird that I pray during football games? It might be weird. What else is weird? I
2: don't know. Let's find out. That's not weird.
0: Well, I got a great show for you today. What's so wonderful? Ooh, stuff. I feel, I feel so very weird.
1: The Week in Weird. All right, and our first story comes from the L.A. Times, and it takes place in a place that Matt Casa tells me is pronounced Caracas, Venezuela. And this is, I'm going to warn you folks, it's kind of a a long Week in Weird story here, but it's it's fascinating to me. Skulking in the dead of night in the remote and overgrown Las Pavas section of the Southern Municipal Cemetery, robbers armed with crowbars and sledgehammers first shattered the tomb's concrete vault and the granite marker that read, To Our Dear Wife and Mother in Heaven, and then the long Venezuelan name, which I won't say. Then they lifted the coffin lid and stole leg bones and the skull of the woman who had died September 9th, 1993. They sold the bones for $20 each, the skull for as much as 300 said Father Atelio Gonzalez, the cemetery's resident Roman Catholic priest. Sometimes entire skeletons, particularly those of children, are stolen from crypts in this final resting place of hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans, including three former presidents. These unscrupulous people are insulting God and committing a mortal sin, said Gonzalez. He said that graves in the city's largest cemetery are robbed every night, and it's getting worse. They have perfect liberty to desecrate the tombs because the government does nothing to stop it. And here's where the story starts to get really interesting. The desecration of the woman's tomb was was part of a ghoulish crime wave including assaults, rapes, and dope deals that has made the cemetery so dangerous that funeral home workers say they carry weapons whenever they go there. Parts of the vast cemetery, particularly the remote hillside sections reserved for the poor, are in ruins and choked with weeds, providing perfect cover for thugs and the homeless. In the past, when graves were robbed, the primary primary objective was to steal personal effects such as jewelry or gold fillings, But uh, today the thieves are pillaging the graves for darker reasons. The buyers of the bones are Poleros, the practitioners of a black magic cult related to Santeria, whose rise in popularity in Venezuela is fueled by a strange brew of faith and politics. Santeria, witchcraft, and black magic are much more out in the open now, said Odalis Cadera, an investigator in the city's judicial police. That's the reason. Of course, the state is aware of the robberies, but hasn't taken the necessary steps to impede them. Santeria, which combines Catholicism and African and indigenous spiritualism, was brought to the New World by slaves from Africa centuries ago and still thrives, particularly in Cuba, Haiti, Brazil, and increasingly in Venezuela. Although most Santeria followers steer clear of the use of human remains and Satanism, the Poleros embrace them. They use bones in black magic rituals in which the objective is to cast evil spells on enemies to induce bad luck for an unfaithful spouse, a car accident for unwanted in-laws, a serious illness for a business competitor, etc. Police church officials and historians offer a variety of theories for the rise in Santeria, generally, and of black magic in particular in Venezuela. Some, including anthropologist Raphael Strauss, point to the vacuum left by the Roman Catholic Church, which, as it has in many other Latin American countries, has lost believers in Venezuela to evangelical and other Protestant religions. Church roles are also suffering from a lack of interest among younger people. But others see politics at work. Father Manuel Diaz is a parish priest at El Hatillo, suburb of Car- Caracas, where three Santeria babalios or shamans have recently opened centers. He says the government of leftist President Hugo Chavez is encouraging the rise of Santeria to counter the authority of the Catholic Church, which Chavez has viewed as his enemy. In a pastoral letter to his parishioners last month, Diaz said the government has a, quote, concrete, ob- concrete objective to undermine the authority of the church and align its faithful with certain ideologies. In the letter, he wrote that leaders of the movement to discredit the church were coming from an unnamed Caribbean country, presumably Cuba. Although Santeria and other spiritualist religions have been present in Venezuela since Spanish colonial days, the rise of black magic, including that practiced by the Poleros, is relatively new. Without offering hard evidence, Maria... Garcia De Fleury, a comparative religions professor at New Sparta University in Caracas, said church officials blame the growing presence of Santeria on Cuba, which they say is exporting uh, babaloas along with doctors, teachers, and sports trainers to Venezuela, as part of closer economic relations with Chavez. While not addressing Santeria, Chavez did say in February 2003 broadcast of his Allo Presidente TV talk show, he denied that he was a believer in black magic. He is known to be a mystic of sorts, and some say that he believes in, he is the reincarnation of a 19th century Venezuelan leader, Ezequiel Zamora. On a recent day, the cemetery was the scene of a macabre ritual that has become a regular occurrence whenever the young gang member is buried, Gonzalez said. It provided another example of the lawlessness there. During the funeral procession for a 25-year-old gunshot victim, friends suddenly halted during the, and removed the corpse from the coffin to give it one last joyride around the cemetery on the back of a buddy's bonus motorcycle. As a final homage before burial, he was given a 30-gun salute from pistols fired by his pals. One of the bullets punctured the umbrella of Father Gonzalez, who officiated at the burial. So, what a strange story, Matt Costa, when you hear weird. tied into the government. This dark cult of of Santeria tied into Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez, who a lot of people have a great distrust for, just in his relations with the with America and the U.S. president. He's tied into cult activity. Who knew? That's crazy.
2: Politician? No.
1: It, it, it's like it reminds me of that guy in the, sixth, in, the in the sixth. What's the, that movie? End of Days. End of Days the, the, the guy in End of Days it just reminds me of that I, I think I we're think
2: the be.
1: only few people saw that movie listen I guarantee you there's somebody else out there right now <laughs> listening to Spooky South Coast who has heard of End of Days and you know what we're going to do the first person to email me and, and tell me I don't know Something about the movie End of Days We'll send them a Spooky South Coast Bumper sticker How's that sound? Some,
2: somebody out there Is jamming right now To that to the, That awful Guns N' Roses song If
1: you can tell us The name of the Guns N' Roses song On the, uh, on the End of Days soundtrack You'll win a Spooky South Coast Bumper sticker The first email <laughs> Tim at Spooky Dot com What do you have For us Matt Costa? Alright
2: A mysterious Giant fireball Was spotted Exploding over the ocean Off the Jersey shore On the night of September 2nd But officials have No idea what it was the unidentified falling object was first seen at about 8.40 p.m. by people on the Normandy Beach in Ocean County It was also spotted as far away as Fire Island in South Carolina. It was dispatched as, as a fireball over the ocean, going into the ocean, said Deputy Chief Tim Cook of the Tom Rivers New Jersey Fire Department. At least 15 witnesses on the beach all described the same thing. Coast Guard cutters and helicopters were dispatched but nothing was found. It's a real mist it's a real mystery, said a Coast-, Coast Guard spokesman. The FAA also had no idea what it was. We have no planes reported missing, said agency spokes- spokesman Jim Peters, who said he checked in the area airports nearby McGuire and nearby McGuire Air Force base. Some officials speculated that it may have been a comet or a meteor, but with the New Jersey Astrological Association who was quoted as saying, "It's news to us." The rare, uh, the, there was a rare, there was a rare meteor shower, which produced brown, blue and green lights. That was expected to take place the night prior, and that is expected to be the blame.
1: I know what the real blame is.
2: Is it that reenactment we did of? that famous scene from Blazing Saddles?
1: No, but that that <laughs> might cause some... some. I think it's Bruce Springsteen. Yeah. Because I, I'm pretty sure Bruce Springsteen lives in Tom's River, New Jersey. Does so I think Bruce Springsteen has something to do the with boss. it. Boss? He's got a new album coming out, so what a, what a great way to promote it by, you know, causing yeah. havoc.
2: Blowing stuff up? Yeah. That's what I'd do.
1: That's what I would do, too, if I was him. I mean, uh, yeah. you know... It's an E Street Band album, it's, it's big time, you know, you got to get the word out. It's not like one of these little Bruce and the acoustic guitar, you know, harmonica around his neck, the, you know, the, totally off the subject uh, uh, of anything to do with the paranormal. You ever notice how when Bruce Springsteen does a solo album, he's all scruffy and, and grows the beard out and wears the leather jacket and, and dogs out the microphone and sing like this and can't understand a word he's saying but then when he does something with the E Street Band, he's clean-shaven, and he's wearing the flannel shirt, and he's rocking and rolling, and you can understand every word he's saying.
2: That's that's, that's weird, weird story That's so. weird.
1: It could be. We'll see if we can get Bruce on the phone and ask him about it. But if you have a story you'd like to submit for the Week in Weird, all you have to do is go to SpookySouthCoast.com, sign up for the message board, click on the Week in Weird thread, drop the story in there, and if we read it on the air, you'll get a bumper sticker. That's right, a fabulous Spooky South Coast bumper sticker which uh, Matt Cost is furiously drawing the next one right now. What we're going to do now is we're going to take a break. When we come back, we will have our interview with cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman, author of the book Mothman and Other Curious Encounters, and he will share with us his thoughts on the Mothman and what it's all about. So stay tuned. We'll be right back here on Spooky South.
0: Lost Civilizations Extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. For
1: 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic, significant, and truthful to say. Keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal, angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at Fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits.
3: And catch the fish upon his hook, he thought it very queer. And what a kind of fish it was, young Lampton couldn't tell. He wouldn't fush to carry it again,
0: so he hoied it down
1: the well. We are going to talk now with Lauren Coleman, the cryptozoologist. Uh, his latest book is Mysterious America, the revised edition, and uh, we highly recommend that you go out and get that. It's it's has stories of all kinds of popular local legends and And uh, creatures of unknown origin all around the United States, uh, Phantom Panthers, the Dover Demon, which we talked about before, uh, Mad Gassers, uh, Minnesota Iceman, it's definitely worth checking out. But we want to talk to him about a book he actually wrote uh, a few years back, Mothman and Other Curious Encounters.
3: I did it in conjunction with Sony Screen Gems, who came to me before their movie came out, and I had in mind to do a book on Mothman, and they said, hurry up and do it, we want you to... uh be our publicity spokesman around the country on this movie.
1: So uh, when, when they told you that was there, I mean, you must have already been gathering all kinds of data and, and research over the years anyway, just from receiving reports uh, from all different types of cryptozoological creatures.
3: Oh, definitely. I've been writing uh, in articles and uh, interviewing people since the 60s. I've been a friend of uh, John Keel since 1969. So I was very involved with Mothman phenomena. It's just I hadn't written a book with a Mothman name on it yet.
1: And when you did start, you know, going back into the Mothman saga for the book, was there anything that stood out that was different than what you know Kiel had reported? Was it, what was it that, in your eyes, changed the story a little bit from what we had known previously?
3: Well, what interested me in writing the book was, of course, everybody knows about John Keel and his book that really brings in UFOs and Men in Black and and a whole psychological thriller angle to the phenomenon. And when I was interviewing John Keel for this newest book, Mothman uh, and Other Curious Encounters, he said, you know, people have really misidentified me. He said, I'm a demonologist and that's really the way I look at all this phenomena. And my interest, of course, has been cryptozoology and and what I'd always been involved with was the cryptozoological angle with the mothman. And, and my mentor, Ivan Sanderson, had been also a friend of uh, John Keel's. And and Ivan Sanderson and I had always had the f- view that this was really a large bird that had been reported. So I wanted to track down the original reports. I talked to, you know, Linda Scarberry and... Uh, Marcella Bennett and a lot of the original witnesses re interviewed them and went over the old uh, stories and saw how they had evolved. And the witnesses actually had even evolved their stories to really fit Keel's book. And what I did in my book then was really go back and find out that in 1966, when these first reports were occurring in in, uh, November of 1966, People were reporting it as a large bird, a big bird, and I discovered that uh, a copy editor in Ohio had decided that he liked the name Mothman because he was a big fan of the Batman series that had been on TV with Adam West. So he used the word Mothman in a headline and that of course caught on in the no- newspaper world and then it caught on all across. Uh, Moss Mothman's country, really. Mm-hmm. And that changed the whole view of how people uh, looked at it, all the way up through the movie in 2002, where people really have lost track of this being an animal or a bird or, or any kind of animate cryptid behind it, and they've gone all the way over to that this is some kind of illusionary, fantastic creature.
1: Now, when you say that you thought it was a large bird of some type, you're thinking along the lines of a thunderbird type sighting.
3: Well, I, I certainly know that the thunderbird reports from around the Appalachia area, up and down the Appalachians, are there. Uh, large birds on the bald mountains, uh, birds that have uh, picked up, you know, everything from dogs and sheep to people, including lots of Cherokee Indian legends, really uh, orient in that area. A friend of mine, Mark Hall, feels that it really overlaps with giant owl reports, and he was able to backtrack from the Point Pleasant area reports from the 1800s of uh, giant owls, which the Native Americans there had called talking heads, uh, where the, the head of the creature looked like it was in the body, and that is very similar to a lot of the descriptions of Mothman. And then, uh, of course, in the 1930s, there were reports of these large uh, birds or owls that were flying over jalopies and really scaring people up and down the, the old highways there. So there was a lot of history there that people had really ignored and really had focused only on in on 1966 and 67. And I wanted to try to bring all of that together, really put it in context of the thunderbirds and the giant owls. And and also, you know, appreciate the fact that Keel is a strong influence, and uh, he he really influenced how people were beginning to think about Mothman. Uh,
1: when you hear these reports uh, and, and you read the reports that are in Keel's book, Mothman Prophecies, at what point, as a cryptozoologist, do you draw a line and say, you know, I I can't really delve into that aspect, like these supposed UFO tie-ins? The, the Men in Black visits, I mean, how much of that do you not even include in your investigation, trying to find out whether or not this is actually a cryptid?
3: Well, I'm a, I'm a cryptozoologist, that's certainly true, but uh, long ago I was a Fordian, a, a follower of Charles Ford, just like Keel is, and so I, I'm very interested in and in do investigations on all kinds of unexplained phenomena. I'm also a social scientist, in which I I look and delve into the fact of whether or not there's a psychological aspect to these sightings as well as human phenomena. So I don't neglect any of that. What I do uh, that's a little bit different than Keel, I think, is I look at timelines, I look at social cycle histories in a way that Keel just kind of puts it all into a mixer. Mm. But what I started noticing is, yeah, there were UFO reports there. They happened in April. And the uh, Mothman reports happened in, uh, you know, November and December. Uh, And Keel would just put them all together, and there was never any cause and effect. There was never a UFO that landed and, and, you know, disembarked uh, Mothman and Bigfoot. They were really separate things. There were cattle mutilations there, but Mothman was never related to those cattle mutilations. There were men in black reports there. Uh, Those did not happen... In conjunction with the uh, Mothman reports, they all seem to be happening there, and it is a very, very strange time in Point Pleasant. I don't neglect that, but I, I also say that it is possible for things to be very strange and weird without them being uh, cause and effect.
1: Well, that's what's interesting about uh, Keel's book is the timelines do jump around and in one chapter you're talking April of 66 and then November of 66 and then 67 so it does kind of jump around and, and it doesn't really even tie in a lot of a lot of things together it, it's just it'll talk about one type of phenomena for a while and and then another is in, yeah. in in your experiences though and you said there is no cause and effect relationship is there anything going on socially in these social cycles that you talked about that we could tie Either type of sighting into.
3: Well, I mean, the other part of what's jumping around is John Keel. He he visited there six or seven times, mm-hmm. and much of his story takes place in his apartment back in New York and on Mount Misery, uh, New York. and And he's getting uh, he says he's being channeled and talked to by certain individuals that are are psychics and uh, and contactees and different things like that. And they're going all into the mix. I think that what I'm beginning to see, and I certainly have not um, been shy about my interest in what I call the Mothman Death Curse or the, uh, the death list, where if you look at all of the movies that have been made and you, know, you read that several movies like Poltergeist has a Poltergeist curse, mm-hmm. but if you start counting the number of people that died connected to the Poltergeist movie, it's, it's only a handful of four or five people. And I've been very clearly, and I wrote an article in 14 times and have uh, you know a website with a death curse on it, the Mothman Death Curse. There's over 80 people connected to the Mothman phenomena that have died of mysterious deaths or, or deaths that seem to, to follow very quickly after a showing of Mothman or a, a filming of Mothman. And so I think that uh, underneath it all, uh, whether or not, a demonologist or an occultist or whatever, there now has become this whole uh, situation around Mothman that's extremely sinister. When I was in the middle of doing uh, 400 interviews over two months in 2002 to help Sunny Screen Gyms promote the movie and, and I was talking about my book, I would have an interview and afterwards I'd, I'd go upstairs and the light over my head would burst above me wow. uh, or I'd be in an interview and there would be phone problems and I think we've even experienced that today a little bit <laughs> uh, luckily luckily, none of the listeners will have to hear that because you've cleaned it up but that seems to be quite frequent with Mothman interviews I have an incredible time finishing interviews if I'm talking about Mothman
1: Well 80 people dying around the Mothman case I think that actually beats out the JFK conspiracy uh, but i I think
3: it's a higher body count that's for sure
1: and but how much of it is is directly tied in i mean is it because you know the poltergeist curse they talk about that or or the omen or the exorcist whatever but like in the poltergeist curse, Curse, you know one person had a bad heart uh julian beck was already ill when he started filming the movie some of those are kind of stretches with the mothman how many of these are just things that could have happened anyway and are just coincidence and how many of them do you think are directly influenced
3: well, I think that certainly there's, there's, you know, the older people that are going to die. Like the executive producer of the movie, he died. Uh, but there's other very strange ones. Uh, Mark Pellington, for instance, the director. His wife, uh, who was 42, got this strange illness, and she died. She was, uh, she was thanked in the credits of the movie. She's a costume designer uh, from Hollywood, and and she just died. The uh, the guy that put together the music for uh, a movie called Mothman, which came out before the most recent one, he died. Uh, the The illustrator who did the cover of my book, his son uh, very mysteriously uh, committed suicide. So there's some very strange connections. They oftentimes aren't. And then, of course, there's the 46 people that died when the Silver Bridge collapsed. And a lot of people very directly see the Mothman as a banshee that really tried to warn people that something sinister and awful was going to happen. You know, with Mary Hyde, having who's the reporter there, having dreams about uh, uh, floating packages, Christmas packages in the water. I've heard from people since that time who had nightmares in which they knew the, the bridge was going to collapse. And, and some of the people on the bridge were related to eyewitnesses, Mothman eyewitnesses. The week that the Mothman movie actually opened in the United States, two uh, direct brothers of eyewitnesses uh, in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, died that week, and the the community had a power outage. They had more accidents in that county in the last 40 years. Like nine people died in automobile accidents uh, around Point Pleasant. So it it, it just seems like deaths and really... Sinister omens tend to fly around Mossman in, in a way that sometimes uh, really does freak out people.
1: And I know that uh, you were recently on Coast to Coast, and, and I had talked to you uh, via email about it, and, and Matt Moniz and I talked about it on the Spooky South Coast, about the I-35W bridge collapse in Minnesota and how there were some similarities to the Silver Bridge. But, you know, you had reported on, on Cryptomundo that there hadn't been you know, a lot of Mothman sightings surrounding this, and then all of a sudden when it's talked about on Coast to Coast, there's all these people that claim to have had Mothman sightings beforehand. Uh right, Do, do right. you think Mothman was tied into that event, or do you think it's just, you know, postscript, a lot of people try to tie it in?
3: Yeah, it is hard to tell that uh, it came out afterwards that there were in southwest uh, or southeast of Minnesota some Mothman sightings in the months before that. Uh, what I initially pointed out, which was a weird coincidence, is that uh, indeed uh, the Silver Bridge, uh, the the road that uh, crossed the river, and car- the Silver Bridge carried U.S. Highway 35 across the Ohio River. And so here you have, uh, in 1967, uh, U.S. Highway 35, the Silver Bridge collapsing, uh, then I-35 in Minnesota, which was built and opened only a few weeks after um, the Silver Bridge collapsed in 1967, collapses again. Um, so it, it did seem that the coincidences began mounting up and then very quickly after that, uh, a few weeks after the Minnesota Bridge, we had a bridge over in um, in China collapse that was connected to a Mothman bird-like creature over there. So uh, it just seems like it's it's cautionary tales or or things that we need to look at. But you're right. As soon as you appear on coast to coast, or maybe even this show, people are going to come forward uh, with uh, a Mothman uh, sightings that you hadn't heard about before.
1: And as it becomes more prominent in the media through your book and and Kiel's book and and certainly the 2002 movie, people's minds are going to wander toward that and make that connection on their own, uh, even without you know, coast to coast uh, or another show, putting the idea in their head.
3: Exactly. I mean, nobody, there was a very big gap. Akil's book, the sightings happened in 66, 67. Akil wrote a little bit about it in some of the specialty uh, journals, and and I wrote a little bit about it. And then in 75, uh, his book came out. But until the movie in 2002, people really had ignored and kind of, uh, Mothman had flown under the radar. I mean, a lot of us in the field knew about it, but now everybody knows about it. It's a, a major motion picture. Any motion picture that uh, you know, Richard Gere and Laura Linney and Deborah Mess- Messing is going to appear in. We're going to hear about it for years, and and we uh, certainly see repeats of it all the time.
1: And and one of the it's, things too is with with it being out there and and more recognizable, you know. Other, there will be other situations and other cultures that will come to light, uh, through your website, Cryptomundo, which, you know, people go on and, and report all kinds of strange phenomena. We, we get more of these type of reports that we might not have thought are connected, uh, in the past as well. I mean, if, if you go right. back it's, and, and see other disasters, there might have been other Mothman type sightings you can tie into them.
3: Right. And the other thing about the movie and also the documentary that went with it, uh, there were some fictions in that movie, the Mothman movie.
1: Oh sure, that
3: came came out, and it it said some things as fact that have confused people, such as uh, that there were Mothmen seen before Chernobyl melted down, or that there was Mothman seen before the Galveston hurricane, or the uh, you know Mexican earthquake. None of those things ever happened, but they were fictions created in that movie and unfortunately carried over into the documentary because they used uh, they used snippets from the, the fiction movie in the documentary. So I'm still hearing people argue with me that there was Mothman seen in Chernobyl, and both John Keel and I uh, told the documentary filmmaker, you know, there's no way that ever happened, and you're, you're creating a, a confusing fact that will haunt us for years, and it still is haunting us.
1: Is there any type of Mothman sighting still reported today that, you know, just randomly not associated to any kind of tragedy, but occasionally popping up on Cryptomundo or, or that you hear people email you?
3: Yeah, I think one of the problems, of course, is that nobody nobody, and everybody calls a Mothman. There's, you know, a couple of years ago there were giant uh, Thunderbird sightings from southwest Alaska. There's been sightings of Thunderbirds in Pennsylvania quite a bit. And there's some historic cases that people were finding. And these are usually called Thunderbirds, but because now the Mothman is so famous, you'll see them written up as Mothman. A, uh, a Texas series of sightings of large birds are often called Mothman now. The Owlman reports from the 60s and 70s in um, in England, for instance, are being re reworked and republished as Mothman cases. So... I think it's uh, it's just like what I saw in the evolution from uh, bondable snowmen reports in the 1950s uh, then in the 1960s and 70s becoming Bigfoot reports. So mm-hmm. you don't hear people saying that there's a bondable snowman seen in uh, California anymore. You, you t- Everybody talks about Bigfoot. So you don't hear people talking about Thunderbirds anymore. You hear them reworking it and reframing it as Mothman reports. And so, yeah, there's uh, we're keeping up to date on Mundo about those Mothman Thunderbird reports and, uh, you know, the carvings that are found or the new fossils or the, the actual new sightings that occur all the time.
1: Now, w- one of the trademark characteristics of Mothman, of course, is the, the red glowing eyes that, that seems to hold everyone's attention. Uh, and is that, in, in your research, have you found either any true-life creature that we know of that could have a, a similar uh, type of eyes or even some other natural phenomena that might be mistaken as, as an animal's eyes?
3: Well, here again, this is a, a piece of research that myself and, uh, uh, you know, some other individuals connected with State Magazine have written up, and those eyes glowed red because they had headlights from cars shining in them. Mm-hmm. Every one of the red li- red-eyed reports were because of reflected light. And so you have Mothman with red eyes, you have Bigfoot with red eyes. There are all of these kinds of different animals of the netherworld, world, so to speak, that have red eyes and none of them really do uh, pan out to be because they're glowing on their own. It's because there's an external source of light that's shining into their eyes. I, the problem, of course, is that uh, you and I know that you can take a photograph of anybody, and if it's a, a, a photograph with a flash that doesn't correct, you're going to get red eye in the in the eyes of the human beings. So uh, red eye is around all the time. It's just that people have once again made this part of the myth that Mothman has red glowing eyes, when in fact they don't.
1: And and when the you know the idea of it holding their attention, I know that if I saw two glowing red you know, eyes out in the middle of nowhere, I'd probably stare at them too, you know, and I'd be oh, transfixed.
3: Sure. Right. Well, the, the, you know, the initial witnesses, they described them as those uh, reflectors that people in the Midwest put at the end of their driveways, mm-hmm. the little red round ones, uh, and that's very much what they looked like. They were huge and red and reflected the, lo- the red light.
1: Yeah, I, I have some of those on my driveway too because I'm not that good at backing up in the dark. <laughs> I could use some mothman just, eyes myself. Just don't
3: think it's mothman that you're seeing, right?
1: No, I'm more afraid of running into like an injured cold type character. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, one of those, you know, supposed uh, uh, who knows where they come from, trying to tie into uh, these stories. Have you ever encountered any any type of strange person like the reports in that book?
3: Well, I did write up once an incident that occurred to me. I was uh, investigating. Uh, a strange phenomenon in Illinois once, and I was living in Illinois. The phenomenon was called the enema bandit, and it was a, a, a situation where this person or individual or something was going around, and I tracked it down to Urbana, Illinois, and Norman, Oklahoma, and various other places across the country where a, a person would break into usually college dorms, tie up, tie up co-eds, and the one that was the chubbiest he would give an enema to. Hmm. and what I was trying to figure out, was this a Fordian phenomena, was this like the Phantom Clowns, or was this a real, a real one in the, the 60s that nobody had uh, really decided yet was going on? And so late at night, I got this knock on my door, and this very lanky, tall, um, let's say, man in black, Uh, came in, identified himself as Detective Applegate, and he said he was uh, investigating whether or not I was the Enema Bandit, because I had been investigating this, and uh, my usual, way back then, before uh, email, I would write uh, massive amounts of letters to, uh, you know, police departments, to newspapers, trying to get files, and, uh, you know, the original newspaper articles, and, and different things like that, so... Uh, I had lots of letters going in and out about the animal Bandit and, and had huge files. And this guy comes in and says, you know, well, you, you've got to quit doing this. And we think you were it, and you're raising a lot of people's uh, attention. Well, the guy left, and it was very spooky. I know, mean, it was not, not, you know, before 5 o'clock. It was after 7 and 8 at night. It was dark outside. So the next day, of course, I called the Decatur Police Department and said, you know, could I speak to uh, Detective Applegate? And they said there's nobody like that that works here. And of course, uh, it was only years later. I think it was in the, you know, Damn Yankees movie or something, where I understood that Applegate is oftentimes a a, a name given to the devil. Mm. So I don't know. I don't know if I I've touched up against the Men in Black or not. But that's one of the more bizarre encounters that I had in that whole
1: area. Well, I think the the best case scenario is you might have run into the Enema Bandit himself trying to throw you <laughs> off his own trail. <laughs> yeah,
3: could, <laughs> you, could be. You, could
1: you, were, you be. were lucky to get out of there. Uh, one Without island, an Enema, I right. Yeah. Yes, I know. So uh, you must be entering a a pretty busy time of year, so you must have a lot of appearances coming up. I know one of them is you're going to be uh, up here in Massachusetts, or actually down here for you, uh, in, as part of the Mass Monster Mash Conference.
3: Right, right. I'm going to be at the, the Mass Monster Mash, and I'll be talking uh, this year on the Dover Demon, and in 2008, I'll be back to give a talk on Mothman. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. I, I understand this is the second or a third annual? Second annual. Yeah. yeah, second annual, and so it's good to to be in there. There is a whole, in my book, uh, Mysterious America, there's a whole chapter called The Things That Go Bump in the Bay State. And so uh, I used to actually live in Cambridge for many years and and now have uh, two sons in two different uh, Massachusetts colleges and universities. So I quite frequently find myself in the Bridgewater Triangle.
1: Well, just uh, make sure you keep your eyes open, and if you hear something in the woods, it's actually probably Matt Moniz. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he'll, I'm sure he'll be following you around and, and uh, hopefully not trying to give you an enema.
3: Right. I look forward to the talk down at the Monster Mash and meeting a lot of people I've talked to over the years.
1: Excellent. And we hope to see you there as well. Thank you so much for your time, Lauren. And, and uh, keep us up to date with uh, any Mothman sightings or anything else. And we'll keep checking Cryptomundo.com. And uh, for anybody who hasn't picked up Mysterious America, make sure you do so, because it's it really is fascinating to see all of these reports coming from all different corners of the country.
3: Great, Tim. It was good talking to you tonight.
1: Thanks, Lauren. Talk to you soon.
3: Bye-bye.
1: All right, that was our talk with Lauren Coleman, cryptozoologist. And you can, of course, check out his websites, laurencoleman.com and Cryptomundo.com. They are both linked up to our site, SpookySouthCoast.com. We're going to take our final break of the night, and when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more for a few minutes about John Keel himself and was the whole Mothman story a fairy tale. We'll be right back with that in just a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast.
3: Hello. Hey man, you up? No.
2: Wake up, I need to talk to you. I
1: think
0: your house is haunted.
2: Hey, come on, it's 2 30 in the morning.
0: I can't sleep in here, man. I'm scared.
1: Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with Matt Costa, the silent assassin. And you were actually doing some research on John Keel, and author of the Mothman Prophecies, and, and you came up with something interesting. Oh,
2: a little bit. Um, I found out a little bit of a man named Gray Barker and his associate, James Mosley, who um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Gray Barker at all.
1: Well, he's, he's in, in the book he's, Mothman Prophecies quite a bit.
2: He is. Uh, he's a known UFO all, uf- UFOlogist, mm-hmm. or UFO either way, either way, um, and a UFO humorist. So,
1: nothing funny about that. Nothing.
2: He uh, he's a known storyteller of the paranormal and takes the paranormal lightly, according to the Skeptical Inquirer. And uh, he actually was going to be the co-author of the Mothman prophecies, which. Uh, John Keel, I guess did not approve of his uh I guess uh artistic mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. You know. His approach. <laughs>
1: well, it's interesting because uh here in the Mothman prophecies on page one twenty three, uh Keel says that he was, you know, so tasked turn about attack turn about UFO buffs had surrounded him with an aura of mystery. And he mentions James Mosley saying that uh, as the editor of Saucer News, Mosley once told Gray Barker, quote, he gives you the impression of not knowing. Uh, I'm sorry. He gives you the impression of not only knowing as much as we about flying saucers, but actually knowing a lot more, a lot that he is not telling. That That's what Mosley told Barker about Keel. So. I mean, uh, and Keel. Anybody that reads the book, I mean, Keel places himself as a main character, and 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 sometimes you'll he'll reference himself, and you're like, ugh, really? Come on, guy. <laughs> so, but it, it's interesting that you, you were telling me about uh, Gray Barker's book, the the Silver Bridge. Yeah,
2: Gray Barker actually uh, made his own account of the happenings at Silver Bridge, and it was a little o- over embellished, I guess, mm-hmm. to say the least, and that's why i guess john keel and Gray have split ways on the book but how much of that um how much of that original like storytelling aspect did john keel actually take did he take it and be like hey that might be kind of a good idea or
1: well i mean in the book he claims to have done much first hand research and i i believe him um but like you said you know how much of it is embellished if if the community that was around him was willing to embellish uh, as well.
2: I mean, from what I understand from the Skeptical Inquirer, they actually went through several several drafts together of the Mothman prophecies before he and Keel split ways.
1: So some of that influence could still be in here? It's possible. Well, he says here, uh, this is what John Keel writes in the Afterword, which was printed in 2002 for this edition that I have. Uh, He says... Uh, I was clearly meant to blunder into that little town in West Virginia and learn things that some men have known for centuries, but were afraid to ask. I warned Sheriff Johnson and Mary Heyer that this was folklore in the making. Gray Barker did try to turn it into a celestial fairy tale, making me to, making me decide to write this book and tell the truth as it happened. So he's claiming that uh, he shirked off any of the influence, I guess you could say, of Gray Barker and the this book, this tome that I hold in my hand right now is the <laughs> true version as it happened. So
2: Gray Barker actually is quoted as saying, I have deliberately stuck in fictional chapters based roughly on cases. I have heard about throughout the fictional chapters is an undertone, which explains the sightings from a psychological viewpoint that is never stated. So, and, and that's, that's from 68.
1: And there's uh, where did it say where he said that in 1968?
2: Uh, it, it was an interview with uh, someone just that's named Sherwood.
1: Okay. Well, I mean, there you go. I mean, it just shows you the, the not only these stories in the paranormal, not only these cases come under scrutiny, but also those who share them. So uh, whenever you present evidence, you're going to come under fire as well because there are those that can't believe what's going on. So that's why we keep plugging away here each and every week, as we will do next week. When we come back with our guests, Dan Gordon and Mickey Bradley, authors of Haunted Baseball. Now, it's going to be interesting because we're coming on right after a Red Sox-Yankees game, and, and Dan Gordon is a Red Sox fan, Mickey Bradley is a Yankees fan. So I'm sure there will be some fireworks depending on how that game plays out in addition to talking about the haunted side of baseball. So we will be back here next Saturday night to talk about that. Until then, for Matt Costa, I'm Tim Weisberg. We want you all to stay spectacular.
0: supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen.